please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And we come tonight to the shortest chapter of the 22 chapters in the book of Revelation. And we're not even going to consider all the verses tonight. Because as we're going to see, verses 1 to 4 speak about God's redeemed people. It's a beautiful description of the redeemed of God. And then actually verse 1 and verses 5 all the way through the end of 16 speak of the judgments of God. So the chapter starts out with the judgments of God in verse 1, the redeemed of God, verses 2, 3, and 4, and then 5 to the end of chapter 16, the judgments of God. So what we're going to do is to consider the first four verses, and we'll deal with verse 1 as it relates to the theme of the redeemed of God found in verses 2 to 4. But before I read those verses, let me just very quickly remind you of a few things. First, the book of Revelation consists of seven cycles which describe the time between Christ's first and second comings. And so what we find in, in chapters 15 and 16 is the fifth of those seven cycles. Secondly, just by way of reminder, the book of Revelation often borrows imagery from the Old Testament and especially, though not exclusively, three books. Exodus and the imagery of, of the Exodus from Egyptian slavery, and that's really going to be most dominant as we'll see here in a moment as well as various sections from two prophetic books, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then I could probably add Zechariah as a fourth. But those and other books form the backdrop of the book of Revelation. And then finally, by way of introduction and reminder, the book of Revelation was written to encourage persecuted saints, and those persecuted saints are summarily found in those seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. So any interpretation of the book of Revelation that ignores that sevenfold repetition, ignores the Old Testament imagery, and the primary person is sure to err. Any interpretation of the book of Revelation that omits, that ignores that sevenfold cycle, those Old Testament books as the imagery of Revelation and the primary purpose of encouraging persecuted saints is certain to err. And I cannot say that, brethren, enough. And so I'll forego from repeating it a third time, but I'm so tempted. And so within chapter 15 and 16, the fifth of seven cycles, we find basically the same things we saw in the previous four and we'll see in the latter two, and that is the judgment of God and the salvation of God. God's judgments upon his enemies and his salvation bestowed upon his elect people. So notice then chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Now just very quickly, another sign. It's, he's thinking back to 12.1 where he saw a sign, and that, if you remember, chapters 12, 13, and 14 form the fourth of seven cycles. So what he's saying here is, is that he sees another cycle. I saw another sign. The chapters 12, 13, and 14 was the last sign, and 15 and 16, the next sign. Great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no more judgment after chapter 16, because in chapter 16, we'll see the seven plagues or bowls of God's wrath poured out on the earth. It's just to say it's the last of three um, imageries that spoke of the trumpets and the bowls, etc. It's the last time that these things are coupled together, because we're going to see there's much judgment described in the next cycle in chapters 17 to 19. But nevertheless, it says that these are the last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. This is going to be 
chapters 15 and 16, a description of those seven plagues, or what's called later, bowls of wrath. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Now verse 5, after these things, indicates that there's something unique that's coming up. And that's the judgments. Or he's going to go on to describe these seven bowls of wrath. And uh, he describes them to the end of chapter 15 and all of 16, all of chapter 16, describes the pouring out of those seven bowls of wrath. So you have wrath of sorts in 15.1, wrath in 15.5 to 8, and all through 16. But what you find in verses 2, 3, and 4 is a respite or a break from wrath. Verses 2, 3, and 4 are bookended by wrath, okay? There's actually wrath in the previous chapter, but then there's wrath in the first verse of 15, and there's wrath in the fifth verse of 15, and there's a whole lot of wrath throughout 16, chapter 16. But what we find in 2, 3, and 4 is a respite, a break from wrath. It's as if God the Holy Ghost wanted John to provide for the people a break in the midst of wrath. There's wrath going to be poured out upon the wicked. In contrast to that, there's salvation bestowed upon the righteous. And that's our tech, or that's our theme for tonight. And so I want to consider verses 2, 3, and 4, and verse 1 as it has relation to verses 2, 3, and 4, by suggesting three things about the redeemed of God. We find in verses 2, 3, and 4, three beautiful descriptions of the redeemed of God. In verse 2, their location, and then in verse 2 further on, their identity, and then in 3 and 4, their song. All right? So we'll find in verse 2, their location. Where are they? Well, they're standing, John says, on a sea of glass. We have to, we've already seen that phrase, you may or may not remember, but we have to grapple a little bit with what that means. And secondly, their identity, they're described most beautiful beautifully in, in verse 2 as the victorious redeemed ones and then their song is transcendent and we're going to spend probably the bulk of our time examining verses 3 and 4 and the song of Moses and the lamb all right so notice their location verse 2 and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire and then he goes on towards the end of verse 2 Describing the saints as standing on the sea of glass, okay? So whatever it means, here we find that the saints are standing in terms of their location. They're standing on a sea of glass. Now, as I've said, we've already seen this phrase back in 4.2. Whereas a sea of glass was before the throne. Now, if you remember, within the Old Covenant, there was a bronze basin, a basin, which was a large bronze bowl filled with water, which stood outside the door of the tabernacle and then temple. Now, you may or may not see it. Let me just su suggest it to you, then I'll try to prove it. By sea of glasses meant that basin of water. And that's why, beginning at verse 5, he goes on to describe, John goes on to describe the tabernacle slash temple. By the way, in verse 5, he talks about the test. He describes the temple. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. 
Uh, brethren, just stop and think of how all this connects. Before you entered the tabernacle or temple, you had to walk past a sea of glass, a large bronze bowl that was filled with clear water, and it would look like a sea of glass. Now stop and think for a second. What was the purpose of that basin? It was for the priests to wash themselves symbolically before they entered the presence of God. And so it here describes them as washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and standing before the throne of God. Because if you go to that other place I reference in Revelation where you have a sea of glass, it speaks of them standing before the throne. They're standing on a sea of glass before the throne. Now remember the throne was within the tabernacle or temple, and it was especially beyond the veil in that holy of holies. So before, before, before the priest went into the large room, the priest went into the large room to do their daily work, and before the high priest once a year went into the smaller room to perform his work of atonement, they all had to first of all wash themselves in the sea of glass or in the basin filled with water, symbolic of the washing of regeneration as well as justification, the forgiveness of sins and the cleansing of our old heart or the gift of a new heart. In other words, nobody goes and stands before God in heaven. Let me put it like this. All the saints here described as um, described by John in this passage are those who are before the throne, standing before God, washed and cleansed from their sins. Okay? That's, I think, the primary point of this text. So, their location is before the throne of God. Now we're going to see, as I've said, next week, verse 5 and following, judgments are going to come from that throne. And they're going to be poured out upon those who, who have never washed themselves in the sea of glass, who've never been bathed in the blood and in the water, who've never been forgiven or cleansed or regenerated. Okay, so the location of the redeemed is before the throne of God, washed and cleansed in a sea of glass or in the basin of the blood of the Lamb. And then that brings me secondly to their identity, which flows from it. Verse 2, those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over the number of his name. These are the victorious ones. They've been washed. They've been cleansed. Now, the beast was mentioned, if you remember back in, verse, or in chapter 13, where we read in verse 17, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. That's what it says back in 1317. And that's describing those who aren't Christians, who bear the mark of the beast. And if you remember, it goes on to speak of the number of his name as 666. And if you remember, when we examined that passage, I suggested that most likely it's a reference to the number of man. Six is the number of man. It falls short of the glory of God, or the number seven. And it's tripled because of the unholy trinity that we find throughout the book of Revelation. In fact, you find in verse 2 a hint to that, don't you? These are those, it says, who have the victory over the beast, that's one, over his image, two, over his mark, uh, uh, and over the number of his name. So I want to suggest to you that most likely that's what we have here. They're described as those who have been kept by God from bowing to this world's ungodly, satanic-ruled system. They have victory over the beast because God kept them. They bear God's image. They bear God's name. They have God's mark upon them. Remember, everybody's marked. There's the 144,000 who are the elect. They bear God's name on their forehead. There's the non-elect 
who are of this world, and they bear the mark of the beast on their forehead and on their hand. Listen to what G.K. Beale says of these people. He says, They are those who have refused to compromise their faith in the midst of pressure and persecution, like the three faithful youths who refused to worship the king's image in Daniel 3. Remember? They refused to worship the king's image, and they were persecuted but kept. And that's the description of God's people here. They refused to bow their knee to anyone save Jesus Christ, their Lord. They're victorious. And why are they victorious? Well, because they've become partakers of the salvation of the Lamb. So when we read through the book of Revelation, there isn't any glory given to the saints. The saints aren't the hero in the story of Revelation. The only hero is God and the Lamb. The Lamb keeps us from receiving the mark of the beast, from pledging allegiance to this world system. And it's really, I think, all summarized in that one little beautiful word in verse 2, They have the victory. And we know that the rest of our Bible, the New Testament especially, attributes this victory to Jesus. Because Jesus is victorious, we share in that victory as his bride. All right, so their location is they're standing before the throne of God, a throne that will produce judgments upon the wicked, but because they've washed themselves in the basin as God's royal priesthood, his holy priesthood. In fact, that's how Peter puts it, right, in 1 Peter 2.9. They have nothing to fear because that throne to them is a throne. As Hebrews 4.16 describes it, a throne of grace, okay? So that's their location. Secondly, their identity. Notice, thirdly, then, their song. Verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying. Now, before we come to the actual content of the song, let me first of all say a few things about this first part of verse 3. Perhaps we can see the introduction to to the song. First, it's important to notice that there are not two songs, but there's in fact one song. There's not the song of Moses and then the song of the Lamb, No, there's a song that's described as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. John is obviously, evidently, most clearly and manifestly thinking of Exodus chapter 15, where Moses and the nation of Israel sang to the Lord a song of redemption after they were liberated from Egypt and gained the victory over the Egyptian army. Do you remember, children? I know you all probably remember the story. They're liberated, as we'll see here in a moment, from Egypt. They're, they're, they're liberated from the plagues. That's important to keep in mind because Exodus and that whole account is in John's mind. There's plagues back in Exodus. There's liberation from Exodus, there's victory, and then there's singing. Well, that's exactly what we find in this text. Instead of ten, there's seven plagues. By the way, when we come to chapter 16, we're going to find that those seven plagues are virtually the identical ten plagues you find back in Exodus. There's plagues, but they're, but they're saved from the plagues by the blood of the Lamb, or in the, in the Exodus account, the blood of the Passover, And then they're liberated from their enemies as they cross through a sea, right? The Red Sea. And God brings his judgments upon their enemies. And then what do they do? Upon upon reflection, they do what? Chapter 15 of Exodus. It says, Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. Now, if we were to go and compare, but we're not going to because we don't have the time. Boy, I would love to go back and compare Exodus 15 with Revelation 15, and you're going to find profound similarities. 
And you know why there's profound similarities? Because the same Holy Spirit who wrote the one wrote the other, and he intended the first to shadow the second. That's a point I want to come back to. Now, to be fair and honest, there is a second song of Moses, and some of you might know it's at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And while it's most evident that uh, here there's, there's reference back, allusion back to Exodus 15, it's interesting to notice if we were to compare the content of this song in Revelation 15, it actually borrows much from that second song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Brethren, the Bible is so wonderfully beautiful. I mean, it's just, it's just off the charts tremendous. John is referring to Exodus 15 primarily. And I just find it helpful. Remember, the chapter titles are not inspired, but, I, but providentially, they've fallen under God's, God's providence, right? Uh, that, uh, that Exodus 15 and, and Revelation 15 use the same chapter numbers. And so it's easy, somewhat easy to always remember Exodus 15, Revelation 15 are the two songs. Furthermore, as we're considering the introductory statement here in verse 3 to this song, this song of Moses and, and of the Lamb is nothing more or less than the new song made reference to earlier on in the book of Revelation. If you remember back uh, some chapters ago, I think it was 14, verse 3, it says that uh, this new song could only be learned and sung by the 144,000. And the reason why only the 144,000 could sing it is because only the 144,000 experienced it. Only God's people can sing of God's redemption because only God's people have experienced God's redemption. And so it's for this reason that we find in verse 1, reference made to the plagues. It's interesting that after this, the, the, seven, the, the uh, seven angels that have the bowls, that will be given the seven bowls, it's not referred to, what's in the bowl isn't referred to as plagues, but the wrath of God, because that's what this, these plagues were, the wrath of God. But I think the reason why John identifies them as plagues in verse 1, because he wants, he wants us to get the context of Exodus, because there were plagues. And how was it that they were liberated or kept safe from the, the ten plagues? The blood of the Passover lamb, and that's why it's called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And then they, upon deliverance, victorious deliverance from their enemies, there's the singing of this blessed song that we'll get to here in a moment. And so this is, in part, what those in heaven now and those who will eventually be in heaven, all of God's people, will sing for all eternity before the throne of God. Okay, so just keep in mind that verse 2, 3, and 4 describe, John wanted his readers to know what their dead loved ones who died in Jesus were doing right at that very moment and what subsequently every person who died in Jesus will be doing and ultimately what all of God's people will be doing eternally before the throne of the Lamb. They'll be singing the contents of this song. And then finally, almost every phrase, and I, I say almost every just because I didn't take the time to actually prove that. But I, I almost could say every. In fact, I typed in my notes at first, every phrase. Every phrase. And I thought, well, that might be an overstatement. So I put almost every phrase, that, uh, beginning with great and marvelous, of this song is borrowed from Old Testament texts, sometimes Exodus 15, but more than that, 
Deuteronomy 32 in that second song of Moses. You find many psalms and then prophets borrowed from here, but it's really a stringing together of Old Testament phrases um, couched in New Covenant or New Testament language. And that's important to keep in mind, brethren, because I want to make a point of that here in a moment, how John so beautifully leans upon Old Testament imagery and interprets it in a New Testament context, showing the unity of the divine revelation. All right, so fundamentally, we come now to the actual content of the song. The song contains two parts, or at least by way of explanation, the simplest way I can do it, I think, is to suggest it contains two parts in verse 3 and in verse 4. In verse 3, there's an exaltation of God. And then in verse 4, there's an exhortation uh, to praise God. An exaltation of God, verse 3. An exhortation to praise God, verse 4. Notice first, an exaltation of God. And in verse, the last, the second part of verse 3, we read, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Now, brethren, just when you read that, there's a cadence, a cadence there, isn't there? Because what he does is, he, there's parallelism here, intentionally so. He talks about the works of God. Great and marvelous are your works. And then the character of God, Lord God Almighty. And then he does the same thing again. Just and true are your ways. That's the works of God. O king of the saints, the character of God. So he has the works and the character of God repeated two times. The works, character, works, character of God. Great and marvelous are your works. Everything God has done in creation, in redemption, and in providence are great and marvelous. And he's the Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. That's again speaking about his works, his way in creation, redemption, but probably especially in providence. And then he describes God as, O King of the saints. And so we find, first of all, in verse 3, an exaltation, and then in verse 4, an exhortation. It's not enough, brethren, for him to extol God. He does extol God and he extols God both for his works and his character. But then he turns to exhort, as it were, that the saints of God would, in light of those things, praise him and fear him and glorify him for those things. Verse 4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? In light of what I've just said, who is there who really takes these things to heart, who will not fear and glorify your name? And then, as if verse 3 didn't supply enough reason, he then gives us three reasons or motives to fear and glorify God's name. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. Now let's very quickly go through these three reasons at the end of verse 4. Four, the first one. For you alone are holy. This is the first reason that John lays at the feet of the redeemed to worship God, to exalt him, as he said in the first, in, in, at the end of verse 3. First reason being God's holiness. For you alone are holy. That is, God alone is natively, perfectly, and immutably, that is, unchangeably holy. Brother, this little phrase is a very pregnant, a very deep, a very profound, and a very beautiful statement about God. For you alone are are holy. Now, it's not my purpose here to give a thorough exposition of the attribute of holiness. 
But just keep in mind that at the very heart of this term, while it includes purity, right? That's what we think of, I think, when we think of holy, we think of something pure. God is pure, right? He's free from darkness. He's free from sin. He's free from wickedness. But at the very core of the term, there's really and fundamentally the idea of separation. Um, for example, go back in your mind to, uh, we talked about the tabernacle and the temple, where the utensils used in the tabernacle and temple were called holy, right? Everything that uh, was associated with the, with, the, with the worship of the old covenant was holy. Well, those utensils were not morally pure in contrast to the other ones, but they were separate. They were separated from the others. This is really the, the notion of God's holiness. It speaks of the other vanness. That's actually a word I got from R.C. Sproul. The other thanness of God. So, um, if you don't like that term, blame R.C. He's actually literally in verse 3 and 4 right now worshiping God. So, I don't think he'll be offended if you take offense at him. Or he'll be concerned if you take offense at him. And if you like it, sorry, I can't take the credit. You've got to give it to the old Presbyterian who's now in heaven. God is other than. He's different. He's unique. He's separated from creation. Brother, that's a tremendous thought. God is not like us. He alone is God. Who is there like God? In fact, if you go and read that 15th chapter, and do that if you have time tonight or tomorrow, the 15th chapter of Exodus, Moses actually speaks of the fact that God alone God alone is God. Who is there like thee, O God? That's right out of Exodus 15. God alone is holy. Now I want you to think with me for a second. Some of you will know um, Arthur Pink's rather famous book, well-known book. Actually, it was a collection of articles that he wrote monthly for his magazine. Somebody down the road put them into a book called The Attributes of God. Now, I was given a, a copy of the attributes of God probably a couple years after I was Christian, so I would say 96-ish. Actually, I was given this very copy, I think, and uh, whoever, uh, Moody put this out, and Moody actually coupled those, those articles on the attributes with other articles that he wrote on the glory of Christ. And so it's really two books, if you will, in one book. Now, here's... Here's a trivial question that's worth, um, well, if you get this right, you pass all tests that I'll ever give you for the rest of our existence. But if you fail it, you never get a second chance. So I would just say probably few of us would know this. And the only reason I know it is because I was relatively a new Christian when I got the book, and the first chapter threw me for a loop. Does anybody happen to know the first attribute he talks about, the first chapter? No cheating. Can't look on your phone. Ah, Pastor Dan, uh, he might. Okay, well, I can't. Sorry, Pastor Dan. Anybody else? Okay, I was, I was banking on the fact that nobody knew, and Pastor Dan messed that all up. The solitariness, this is how he entitles the first chapter. The solitariness of God. The solitariness of God. And I thought, what in the world? Now, I, because I was a, a young Christian and my, and my grammar and English wasn't as uh, uh, polished and as broad and diverse as, as it is today, I knew what the word solitary meant. And the reason why I knew what the word solitary meant was because my grandma Waters always played solitaire uh, card games. And she would, I would say, Grandma, what are you playing? Solitaire. She had probably 15 different games. She would use the, uh, a big uh, cutting board and flipped it on the other side so there's no grooves. It just was a flat piece of uh, board. And for hours, she would watch her game shows and play solitaire. 
And it, was, it actually brings back fond memories because me and my sister, when we had to go there and be babies, and she babysat us, what did we do? Well, sure enough, we played solitaire. I couldn't, I couldn't remember how to play it today, but she had probably 15 different games that you could play. Solitary is simply a card game that you play by yourself. You don't need anybody else. And this is what uh, Arthur Pink is talking about here. God doesn't need anyone else. He is alone holy. Listen to how he starts off the first paragraph. Perhaps the title of the chapter is not sufficiently explicit to indicate its theme. This is partly because so few are accustomed to meditate upon the personal perfections of God. Comparatively few who occasionally read the Bible are aware of the awe-inspiring and worship-provoking grandeur of the divine character. That God is great in wisdom, wondrous in power, yet full of mercy, is assumed by many as common knowledge. But to entertain anything approaching an adequate conception of his being, nature, and attributes as revealed in the scripture is something which very few people in these degenerate times have done. Brother, I don't know when he wrote it, but probably somewhere between the 30s and the 50s, 1930s to 50s. And in many ways, things haven't changed. People don't think about God and the character of God and the divine perfections. Who would write a book about God starting with the chapter entitled The Solitariness of God? Uh, few would. Go, go back in your mind for a second to what Pastor Walden was preaching. What was Pastor Walden basically preaching to us both in the morning and the evening? But he was practically applying the attributes or the character of God to our hearts. Remember all the perfections and the attributes of God that Isaiah mentions that Pastor Cal spoke about? These are things, when we know them, enable us what? To wait upon God. He was giving us a wonderful, practical example on how to live in light of the character of God. And this is the first thing we, we ought to, this is the first reason John provides why we should worship God. Because he alone is holy because of his divine character and or perfections. By the way, I would so much recommend you, if you don't have it, to read through those little chapters. They're so short, you can read one in five minutes. And there's 10 or 12 of them. And they're really helpful to get us, to afford us a right view of God, his holiness. Secondly, his salvation. For all, uh, for all nations shall come and worship before you. I'm not sure why, but somebody sent me, or I saw somewhere on social media today, an older debate between uh, Ken Ham and another Christian who didn't believe the literal account of creation. So there was a young and an old earth debate. And uh, by the way, Ken Ham... I think, really mop the floor with this educated gentleman. But that's an aside. And somewhere in the debate, they started to talk about creation. This guy didn't believe in six literal days. Then the flood. This guy didn't believe in a, in a, in a worldwide flood. And then the scattering of the nations at Babel, 10 and 11. He didn't really believe in the literalness of that account. But it got me thinking when John, or, uh, Ken Ham was talking about the scattering of the nations in chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, there's the more specific account of that at Babel. So stop and think about it. There's the first time we find the word Babel that would become Babylon. And uh, we'll see again here coming up in the next few chapters that that's Symbolic of this world. So we all come from Adam and Eve. We all have a common um, origin. And that would remain true, wouldn't it? Up until chapter 10, in that we, were all, we all had one language and we all lived relatively close 
and we were on a practical level one people. So at chapter 10 and 11, it's not that we're no longer, that those scattered are no longer descendants of Adam and Eve, but now there's the confusion of tongues, which was symbolic of God's judgment. He scattered the people and he separated the people into nationalities. Where does that come from? Genesis 11 and 10 11. And with that begat what? Prejudice. You don't speak like me. You don't look like me. And then in the New Testament, there's the gift. One of the temporary gifts, sign gifts, was that of tongues. Which, which tongues, by the way, were known languages. And the reason why tongues, this gift was given in the beginning of the uh, New Testament was because God is showing everywhere that he's now bringing many tongues, many nations, back into one nation. And that's why in Acts 2, all of those that came to Pentecost from all these different nations heard the apostles speaking the praises of God in their native tongue. Brother, that's the primary point of tongue speaking. It's not a private prayer language. It was known languages. And these known languages, the gift of tongues, the ability to speak in foreign languages previously not known, was intended to indicate that in the gospel, God was taking people from every tribe, kindred, and nation and making them into what Peter calls in 1 Peter 2.9, a holy nation. Brethren, there's only one nation that's truly and willingly under God, and that's the church. Now, I'm not opposed to the phrase, one nation under God. Would, that's on our money. Our currency, would to God it would be true. Our fathers thought it was, it was at least more true to them than today. Would to God that it would be really true. That we would be as, as a nation under God. Now in one sense, obviously, all nations are under God if they like it or not. But there's only one nation truly, willingly, and lovingly under God. And it's the Christian nation called the church. And brethren, this is one reason why we ought to praise God. Because he's taken people from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe. And he's making them into one church. I think this is some of my, I just love this phrase. For all nations shall come and worship before you. We ought to praise and worship him because of his holiness, because of his salvation, but his judgments, for your judgments have been manifested. Now, by judgments here, it's, it's, it's true, I think it, I think it is true that it refers to what we think of judgments, his wrath. Because we're going to see verse 5 and following, it's all about the wrath of God. So I don't think it's wrong to say that the saints in heaven are praising God, not only for his salvation, but for his judgment. His judgments poured out upon their enemies and the wicked who, who blasphemed his name and, and hated and mistreated his people. Brethren, there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's everything right with that. We ought to praise God for all of his works, and a part of those works are his judgments. And his judgments, by the way, are now being bestowed upon the wicked. It's not just something that will come. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1, for the wrath of God is being revealed. And we're going to see that those seven bulls of wrath, while they come to a climax at Jesus' second coming, remember they describe the time frame between his first and second comings. The judgments of God are in the earth, brethren. God is pouring out his wrath in a variety of ways upon his enemies, even now. And that will come to a head at Jesus' second coming, and it's all the reason for the saints to praise him. But I think it's possible, and I, don't, I just don't know. I just didn't have the time to think about it. But it's also possible, uh, and this is what Dr. Beakey spends a lot of time on, uh, your judgments have been manifested. Sometimes the when it, the, the scriptures use the word judgments not to refer to his wrath, though it does do that, but to his ways, 
his judgments, his ways. His wisdom and his judgments, remember Paul says in Romans uh, 11, are past finding out. The, way, the ways of God in the world. And I think that's what's obviously mentioned at, in verse 3. Just and true are your ways. And so what Beeky suggests is that the last part of verse 4 isn't, isn't so much talking about the wrath of God as the mysterious ways of God that will then be made known to the saints that here they're, they're, they're unclear to us, God's ways. But in heaven they'll be manifest to us and we'll see how God manifested his wisdom in leading us throughout the wilderness of this world. For your judgments have been, because in some sense this song is ultimately speaking sung by the elect at Jesus' second coming. So this is what they're going to be singing for all eternity. It's also true that those who die now in Jesus began, joined this choir and began to sing this song. So let's say I die tonight. I mean, it's kind of a sober thought, but I guess I didn't want to use somebody else as an example. I, I'm driving home and, and, I, and, and I just, whatever. I mean, a, a train runs me over. And then a plane falls from the sky and lands on top of me. It's possible. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'll be with this group of people singing the song, right? This song. And then I can say, oh God, when I was on the earth, I saw your ways so dimly, your judgments. But now it's been made clear to me, your wisdom. Your wisdom and your judgments are past finding out. And now they've been made known to me more clearly now we know in part, then we shall know in full. Now we see dimly, then we shall see more clearly. God's ways. Let me close with some lessons. One, we find a lesson on relating the Old and New Covenants. Brother, this text just tells us what I've told us for 15 years. That the Old Covenant or Testament, those are synonymous, is a shadow of the new covenant or testament. So you have a nation delivered and victorious and singing physically. That was a shadow of the new covenant who is a nation, the nation of God's church, liberated from a greater foe than, Egypt, than Pharaoh in Egypt, um, redeemed by the blood of, uh, of the Lamb and not just the Passover. And then we sing a song that's similar but superior to the song of redemption that the Old Covenant people of, sang, uh, 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 Old Covenant people of God sang. Brethren, how do we understand the relation that exists between the two testaments, between the two covenants? Where well, this passage screams at us, hello, why not understand the one as shadowy of the other? The one's a shadow of the reality that we find in Christ. How do we understand the relationship between the Old and New Covenants? Well, let us read Revelation 15, close our mouths, sit down, and learn the lesson. Secondly, a lesson we find, second lesson we find, is on the nature of New Covenant worship. Revelation 15, 3 and 4 provides a template for how we ought to worship God on earth. Brethren, if this is the why and the how of the worship of the saints in heaven now for all eternity, then why not get started now, even though it's going to be very imperfect, worshiping God in the same way and for the same reasons here. If we're going to worship God, if this is what the saints will do, in no small part in heaven and what they're doing in heaven now and will do in heaven for all eternity, put it like this. If this is what we're going to be doing for all eternity, why not start now? So all of our worship, yes, our, our family worship, our personal worship, but especially our corporate worship has to be tempered with these realities. Why is it that we come and worship him? We come and worship him because he alone is holy. Because he has a people redeemed out of every nation. And his judgments 
are manifest. And you can understand that, again, in those one of two ways. In, 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 in put simply, brethren, we come to sing songs that reflect this song. We come to offer up prayers that reflect this song. We come to hear preaching that reflects this song. In, in fact, it's most likely, brethren, this, act, these actual, this actual song in Revelation 15, 3 and 4 probably was an early hymn song in the early churches. They probably literally sang this song. And so all that we do in public worship has to be tempered with this song. And then finally, a lesson on the need for redemption. Brethren, we know by nature we're all in Egypt and plagues are coming. Well, perhaps we can say plagues are, have already started to come. Judgments are already upon this world. And if you're not a Christian tonight, you know what? You're still in Egypt and you have no blood on the doorpost of your soul. How was it, why was it that God's people was liberated from the plagues, but because they had the, do the, the, their, the door of their household painted, covered, with the blood of the Passover lamb? And so by faith, you have to come to Christ and, as it were, cover the doorpost of your soul with not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of the God-man. You have to come and trust him, and when you do, you'll be liberated or redeemed, or you'll have the victory. Victory in Jesus. And the plagues, though they'll still come, won't harm you. They won't destroy you. In fact, we may see next week that God even uses the judgments upon the wicked as a means of sanctifying his beloved people and driving them more tightly into his bosom. Well, we have a song to sing that's really a reflection. I think actually it's taken from 